searching for shrapnel. Fabriken im Deutschland. Worth two blood marbles. That was a haiku. Today's episode of History Obscura has been presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you and me to monetize our podcasts. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so we always know how much we're going to get when we include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. Tell them History Obscura sent you. Hello and welcome back to the History Obscura podcast. Today let's think about what is hardship truly? Is it, let's say, covering our mouths instead of breathing on everyone's fruits and vegetables in the market? Is it standing in line for a painful injection that's supposed to help other people not to get sick? Or is it dealing with all the shopping with these stores that no longer want to service you and give us those plastic bags? Bags upon bags, in other bags, in a box in another bag. Well, perhaps not. If you'd had the pleasure of asking one Ralph Neeson what he thought, I believe he'd have a different answer altogether. Once upon a time, around the very end of the Second World War, the Battle of Arnhem had just been fought and lost with thousands of Dutch people roaming the countryside in search of food and a place to sleep. Ralph Neeson was one of them, and it wasn't long before the Germans found out about his underground activities. He was arrested with his brother. The SS walked into the factory where they had taken shelter and pointed a gun at them. After five years of war, they had learned that one should raise one's hands, so that's what they did. They wound up in Amersfoort Concentration Camp, a Dirtschgangslager, or assembly point for transshipment. With the Allies close by, there were no more transshipments, and so they stayed there. On arrival, they were locked into one-person cells four to each. Not comfortable, but quiet, and they managed to have a fairly good sleep. The next morning, without breakfast, they were marched into the camp proper, and the first thing they saw was an emaciated prisoner with a towel around his neck. Early spring in Holland can be chilly. While they watched, a German officer in immaculate uniform began screaming at the apparition, tore the towel from his neck, and proceeded to kick him to death. The other prisoners were told it was against the rules to wear a towel 
or anything else that was not a uniform. One learns. The prisoners were led into a long, weather-beaten shack, ordered to strip, and issued worn-out German panzer uniforms. They stank, but in the surroundings did not seem out of place. Next, Nielsen was presented to the barber, a prisoner with a pair of hedge shears who performed a combined cutting and pulling operation on his head. It felt of hills and valleys when he was finished. There were no mirrors. Neeson still had trouble believing that this was truly happening to him. He'd been arrested twice before, but had managed to get clear. Escape could not be attempted this time, however, because he was not alone. If he disappeared, it would be rough on his brother. So they agreed not to go, or to go together. After the barber's shearing, he was kicked out into the compound and told to report to a block number. His brother had also been exposed to tonsorial activities, and they laughed till they were sore when first they saw each other. Together, they made their way to their block number and reported to a trustee. Krusty would have been a better name for him. They were assigned a bunk, the brother in the middle, Neeson on the bottom. The top bunk belonged to somebody who was absent. They were then shown the washrooms and toilets. There was no water in the washrooms, and the toilets were invisible. Where the porcelain bowl had been, or perhaps still was, there was simply a heap of human excrement at least two feet tall. Neeson expressed his doubts about being able to sit on the toilet. The trustee asked him whether he had dysentery yet. He said no, and was answered with, You soon will have. He was right. Dysentery was so common, the brothers tore the crotches out of their uniforms and released wastes constantly, once when lined up to be shot. There was a clandestine radio receiver in the camp, and they got news almost as soon as the Germans did from the BBC. Neeson never knew who had the receiver. Occasionally, they could hear battle sounds to the south, and he would think, Canadians. It was their constant prayer in the backs of their minds. Please, please cross the Rhine and get us out. Sometimes frustration made them express less than flattering thoughts about the Allies' fighting abilities. They could see the German tanks were immobilized because of lack of fuel, and their third-rate troops lacked even proper nourishment. Surely they couldn't put up much resistance. What they didn't know was the Germans had a hard, thick crust of good troops along the river. One glorious morning, the apple trees in bloom just outside the barbed wire, Neeson and his brother and 33 others were to be shot by a certain time unless some escaped prisoners returned. The time came and no prisoners. They were lined up against a concrete wall. 
The guard was doubled in the towers, all guns trained on the compound. Two handsome young Germans set up a light machine gun about 20 paces from them. There they smoked and talked while they fed the belt into the gun, sighted it, and sat down beside it. Two things bothered Neeson. The first was that his mother had only two children, and it would be hard on her to learn they'd both been shot. The other was that he was afraid they wouldn't shoot him dead, but bury him alive. Neeson and his brother shook hands. It was a dead silence in the camp. They could hear the birds singing outside the compound. They couldn't have existed inside the wire, because they would have been killed and eaten, except the feathers. They could hear some small arms fire, tanks, and an occasional artillery round. Why did those Canadians not get here? They stood a long time waiting for death, and finally the officer arrived. He just had to give the word, and they'd all be dead. Instead, he said nothing. The two soldiers had extinguished their smokes and taken up shooting positions behind the gun. But more waiting. The commandant arrived with a woman. The brothers would only learn later that the woman represented the Red Cross and had come to inform the Germans that the Allies had cut Holland off from Germany and there was no possible escape for the Germans. Fresh graves would not help them, and apparently they had been negotiating all the time the prisoners stood, waiting for death. The commandant spoke to the officer, and the officer bellowed at the soldiers, who leisurely folded up their guns and left. The prisoners were marched back to the barracks. A few days later, about midday, there was some ragged cheering in the compound. The Canadians had arrived. They had cameras and busily took pictures. Neeson began excitedly talking to one of them, a gigantic man beside the scarecrow prisoners, and lamented that of all the men in the Winnipeg Rifles, he had to pick the one who didn't have any cigarettes. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, or just to get yourself a new chapter of historical fiction every single night, just go to patreon.com forward slash history obscura and join Frank and Tito's nightly story club. Yes, that is Frank and Tito, the podcast mascot with scars over a million. Sign up and he'll let me out of my cage every night to read you a story. <coughs> yes, yes, I've told them. If you prefer, you can do the same at buymeacoffee.com and search for History Obscura Podcast. Good night.